Nehemiah chapter 8, we're going to read um, most of the first nine verses, uh, first eight verses together. Uh, you're going to see some of the names of some of the priests there. And, um, yep, uh, probably those those names will not be on the overhead or on the screen this morning. And so we'll um, not read those names together. And so mainly because they're really hard to pronounce. Okay, so Nehemiah chapter 8. Let's read the first eight verses together. All right, stand with me, if you will, to honor the reading of God's Word. Nehemiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man in the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. So that's men, women, and children. On the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning unto midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. Now come down to verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. That's one of the reasons I have you stand when we read that we would honor the reading. Verse 6. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and they worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, uh, come down to towards the end of verse 7. The Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Now, Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word. Father, today, as we think about this idea of revival, Lord, would, as I prayed earlier, Lord, would you start in my heart and would you do a new work in it, Father? Lord, would, re, would you revive me? Lord, would you create a new fire within me? Lord, I pray for the people who are under the sound of my voice this day. I pray that this day, Lord, would be a monumental day in the life of the people who are under the sound of my voice. God, would you do something that can only be attributed to you this day. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Back in 1857, there was a, a young man by the name of Jeremiah Lampier that went to the city of New York as a missionary. He went in July, and on September the 23rd of... of uh, is it September the 23rd? Yeah, September the 23rd, he had felt called of God to start a prayer meeting on Wednesdays in New York City from 12 o'clock to 1 o'clock. He, he was creating this prayer ministry so that businessmen and women, so that... Uh, blue-collar workers, white-collar workers, that they could that they could come and that they could have a place where they could pray 
for revival, that they could pray for their city, they could pray for their families, they could pray that the Spirit of God would would move in their midst. By the time October, uh, the end of October rolled around, uh, it, it had caught so much momentum that they had to move their prayer meeting from uh, one time a week to every single day of the week. Within six months of September the 23rd, 10,000 men and women were on their faces praying every single day for revival in New York City. And I want you to know that God honors prayers like that. And it's it's estimated that within the next two years of of when Jeremiah Lampier started this prayer awakening, over one million people in New York City were recorded as coming to faith in Jesus Christ. A few weeks ago, or it's a few months ago, we, we held a, a study on revival called One Cry. And one of the things that stood out to me in that Bible study on One Cry, and it's on our Right Now Media um, outlet, you can, you can go back and do this study. Here, here's something that stood out to me. One of the things they said is, if you really want to start revival, here's what you do. You get a piece of chalk, and you stand there on the ground, and, and you draw a circle Around your body. And if you want revival to start, you start with what's in the middle of that circle. Because if revival is going to come, it's going to have to start with somebody. And that somebody could be you. And I'm convinced this morning that we can't put God in a box. If we were to go back and we were studying the great awakenings and some of the greatest revivals that's ever taken place. You can't go back and say everything happened exactly the same every single time. And so what I'm going to share this morning, it's not one of those situations where we say, if you do the following, revival is going to take place, because we can't pigeonhole God like that. God's too big for that. But here's what we can say. If you do the things that we mentioned this morning, because it comes straight out of God's Word, it's it's how God used it there in Nehemiah's time, we're placing ourselves in a posture. We're placing ourselves in a position that the Spirit of God can speak into our hearts and maybe the Father can do something great and mighty in in our lives that would pour over into somebody else because that's how revival happens. It started with Jeremiah Lampier with one person and the first, the first Wednesday he had a prayer meeting, you know how many people he had? He had six. Next time he had 40, but he had to start with five or six. And God could do that within our church. He could do that within within our lives as well. So in Nehemiah chapters 8, 9, and 10, really, the people experience a great revival. The task of rebuilding the wall has been completed, and now Nehemiah turns his attention to rebuilding the people. And so he, along with Ezra... Now, uh, in our English Bibles, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah are two separate books. Uh, in the Jewish Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are one single book, and so they, they go hand in hand. And so Ezra has been on the scene, but this is the first time we meet Ezra in Nehemiah chapter 8. And so he's been there. And so Ezra and Nehemiah, now they're working on rebuilding the people that are within the confines of the wall. And so as they do that, the Spirit of God works. Now let me say this. I'm not going to say much about the Spirit of God in, in, my, in my sermon this morning. But you can bank on it. Revival never happens without the Spirit of God. 
I mean, I mean, we could go through the motions and, 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 and you know, check the boxes of the things we do. But revival comes when we're sensitive to the Spirit of God. And we, were, we, we are sensitive and we obey the promptings of what the Spirit is doing in our life. And so nothing I share, if the Spirit of God doesn't empower it, it, it won't bring revival. So we're dependent upon Him. Maybe I could have made that a point. We have to be dependent upon the Spirit. But anyway, everything I say, it's got to be predicated upon the Spirit of God using it and working it in our life. And so let me share three, three, uh, three truths with you in the, in the area of revival. In revival, number one, there is a greater desire to both know and obey God's Word. Okay, let me repeat that. In revival, there is both a greater desire to know and obey God's Word. And so when you get to Nehemiah chapter 8, it's really a preacher's dream. Because if you get down to verse 3, Ezra gets the law. And now, the law is the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's, it's, it's outside of Genesis. It's not the readings that you would normally pick for your quiet time. Maybe the first part of Exodus with, um, with the deliverance of, of uh, Israel from Egypt. But outside of that, it's not the books that you would pick for your quiet time. Because I've never heard in my life, I've never heard somebody say, Man, I cannot wait to get to my Bible study. I'm reading Leviticus this morning, and man, it's just flat good. I mean, I just I, you just don't hear that. And, and so, but that's what he's reading from. He's reading from the he's he's reading from the Old Testament laws, and he reads from it from early morning, verse three, until midday in the in the presence of men, women, and children. And the Bible says there, and they listened attentively. They paid attention. They they stood there for several hours listening to the reading of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Can I, can I just be honest with you? That's a preacher's dream. I'm happy if you stay away for 30 minutes. And I, and I tell stories. I try to make you laugh. I show videos and PowerPoints. And here they are, several hours, listening attentively to the Word of God. You say, well, what's the difference? In humility, I say this. I don't think Ezra's that great of a preacher, more, more so than I am. He, he's been there for 13 years teaching the Scriptures. And it's only at this point that there's a great revival. I'll give, I'll give you guys some props. I don't think the people there are any more spiritual than, than you guys are. What's the difference here then? Their desire. Their desire. The Spirit of God has put something within them that they're, they're, they're kind of there and, and they're saying, preach on, preacher. Keep it up. We, we need to hear this. Uh, this is good. You, you keep on. No, no, don't stop. Keep preaching. Uh, we need to hear this. This is for our good. That's a, that's a preacher's dream. Just the encouragement that, that they're bringing. And so they're, they're listening attentively. They're, they're paying attention. They're, there's this hunger. There's this desire that they're ready to hear what they're saying, and the priests are there, those names that I, that I didn't read, the priests are there, what are they doing? Well, they're giving explanation. A, a lot of these people that are hearing the scriptures, it, it's being read in the, in the Hebrew language. Remember where they, they weren't raised in the Hebrew language. And so what their priests are doing is, is they're hearing it in one language, and they're giving the explanation of it. It's, it's literally like an interpretation 
they're explaining it to the people. That's what it's referring to at the end of verse 8. They read from the book of law clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And so it's almost like a church service. Like I, like I would stand up here and, 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 I, and a lot of times that's what I do. I read the scriptures and I try to give you the explanation of what it's, what's going on. So that they, they're preaching a message for several hours and they're excited about this. Their desire. In a revival, man, there's just great desire. I, I, I can't give it to you, Mr. Gary. I, I can't give it to anybody in here. Only the Spirit of God can. But when we're desperate for the Father to do something different in our life, when we get desperate to want the presence of God in our lives, that's the posture that we have. Father, speak deeply within our hearts. And I know it would be nice. It would be nice if we got up on Sunday mornings and we came to church and our kids didn't aggravate us to death. And it would be nice if we got up on Sunday mornings and, and we didn't think about um, some everything that else we had going on. And I know we struggle with, with all of, you know, life that's hitting us. But at some point, when we come to church on Sunday morning, we, we've got to have this mentality that we're not coming to check a box. Well, we've got to have this mentality that, man, I need to get to the church house. You know, if I can be kind of like old school for a moment. That we need to get to the church house because, man, I've had a hell of a week and, and, and my, my world's falling apart and, and I just really need Jesus to do something deeply within me. I, I've got to have the Spirit of God to speak deeply into my life. So what can you do? Let me share some practical steps with you to help you to experience God's presence on Sunday morning. Number one, I think you need to prepare for it. I don't think you can just show up on Sunday morning and say, oh, all right, God, speak to me. No, I think you need to take some time during the week to spend time with Jesus to prepare you to worship on Sunday morning. I think you, I think on Sunday mornings, I don't think you should sleep until 1030 to get here at 11 o'clock. I think you maybe need to take some time to spend some time with Jesus to help you to be prepared to worship when you get here. Honest to goodness, I, I can still remember when I came to faith in, G, in Jesus when I was 21. When normal, Almost every single Sunday, I can remember. And now that I think about it, it's just spur of the moment. I can remember my, grand, my granddaddy doing this. And so I guess I just modeled him. I can remember getting up on Sunday morning and spending time with Jesus in his word before I got to church so I could be prepared to worship when I got there. I can still remember getting down beside my bed and praying and asking the Spirit of God to speak into my life when I got to church that morning because I, I needed it. But see, if you really want to experience the presence of God when you come to church, get ready for it. Prepare for it. Number two, pray for your pastors before you get here. Again, I promise you, that's what we, we pray for you. I, I prayed for you this week that this morning as I stand to preach that you would hear a word from God, not from me. I, I, I ask that the Spirit of God would do something mighty in your lives this week. And so when you get ready to come, pray for your pastors. I guarantee you Wesley prays on something along with these lines, and maybe Janet and Leanne as well, when we stand to sing. We're not just stand, asking that you would stand and sing songs. No, we want the music to take you to the presence of God as we sing. And so pray for your pastors. Here's a good one. Be a participant, not a spectator. You know, in sporting events, there's home field advantage. You know, that's why they have home games and away games. There, there's a home-built advantage. 
Why is that? Because when the, when you have the home team, when you've got 80,000 fans or 50,000 fans that are screaming against you, it does something to you. It, 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 it invigorates the home team. And so when you come on Sunday morning, it's not coming just as a spectator. Uh, you need to be our participant in that. When we stand and sing, participate. Uh, when I stand and preach, participate. Get involved. Pay attention. Number four, focus on God, not the ministry that you have to do. Now, this is for some of you, not all of you. But some of you are so busy on Sunday morning that your whole focus is not on worship. It's on everything that you have to do that morning. Don't get to that point. You, you focus on Jesus. You, you get prepared for Sunday, and, and then when you get here, yes, you do the, you, the ministry that God's called you to do, but there comes a time that it's not about that. It's about your worship of Jesus during our time. Here's the last thing. Eliminate as many distractions as possible. You know what this is? Garrett, what's this? It's an iPad. You know what it's on? It's on airplane mode. You know why? Because I don't need a distraction. If you have a cell phone, some of you read Bibles from your cell phone, it should be on, I mean, just being honest, it should be on airplane mode, something like that. Why? Because you don't need a distraction. Uh, and a lot of times, if you're not careful, you'll come in with the mindset you, that you're going to get out your phone and you're going to be looking at Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat while I'm preaching God's Word. Distraction. The enemy has used something that is not good or bad. It's just a, it's just a device. But he's got a stronghold in your life that you can't pay attention for 30 minutes without being distracted for something else. So what do you do? You eliminate the distraction. And if you have to, they print Bibles. And you can bring one. I mean, if it's a distraction, it's not worth you having. Get rid of it. And so I'm not saying if you do all those things, it's going to be a great time on Sunday morning. But I guarantee you, you're putting yourself in a place where you can hear from God. Okay? Now, before I move on, let me say this. Your desire to know the Scriptures is pointless if you don't plan on obeying them. Listen and obey. When you get down to verse 9, the, the people are weeping. And Nehemiah says, hey, this day is to be holy to the Lord your God. Don't, don't, don't mourn, don't weep. Why, why is he doing that? Well, they're, they're reading the law. And I think the first day of the seventh month is to be a holy day. It's to be set apart. It's to be a time of celebration. So Nehemiah says, hey, you can't mourn just yet. I mean, the seventh month, it's a, it's a critical month in the month of Israel. You've got the Day of Atonement there, the Feast of Booths there. And so they're, 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 they've really prepared this, for this day, if you want to know the truth of the matter. And so he says, no, we can't not weep yet. There's going to come a time for that. But right now, we need to celebrate. This is what the, the law is saying. And so there is this aspect of obedience of what they're doing here in this context. And so I can say this very, very certainly. You will never experience revival without obedience to Jesus. Your disobedience will quench the work of the Spirit of God in your life every time. My wife conjured me into playing a softball tournament yesterday. Sam, I hadn't played a softball since I was before I got married. And my forehead, I didn't wear a hat. My forehead is burnt. It's not burnt, but it's, I felt it this morning, Miss Lisa, when I took a shower. And I got thirsty. Man, I was thirsty bottles of water and they had a big old great big cooler there water and gatorade 
what, what did it do? It quenched my thirst. I was, and I was thirsty, and that stopped my thirst. When you live in sin, the Spirit of God is stopped in your life. Disobedience will always do that in your life. And so if there's going to be a great revival, there's going to be a revival in your life, there's going to be revival in our church, and one of the steps that has to take place is that we have to have a desire to both know and to obey God's Word. All right, so number two. In revival, repentance precedes joy. So when people, the people begin to hear the words of the law, they realize their faults, they realize their failures, uh, they realize who God is, He's holy, they realize they're not, and so they realize just how much they've messed up, and so there's just, they're weeping. Um, they're crying, they're, they're mourning. And Nehemiah says, wait, 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 it's not time for that just yet. And so you get to chapter 9, the Feast of the Booths has ended. And look, look down at verse 3 with me. Chapter 9, verse 3, okay? Look at chapter 9, verse 3. And so they stood in their place, this is the, the, the priest, and they read from the book of the law of their God for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of it, they made confession and they worship the Lord. And James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on Nehemiah, he, said, he helps us understand this process. Here's what he says. He said, there could, now listen to this. There could be no forward progression in the Christian life without sorrow for, for sin and turning from it, but there could be no sorrow for sin or a knowledge of why it's wrong without a reading of the law. And so do you see the progression? They begin with the Scriptures, and they, they read the Scriptures. In the Scriptures, they realize where they've messed up. Their sorrow and repentance for their sin, and they turn to them. It's the same thing in our, in our lives. We begin with the Scriptures. We read the Scriptures. What does the Scripture say? Well, it, the Spirit of God uses it, and He puts, points a finger on our life. This is where uh, you're violating my covenant with you. But what do we do? We should be sorrowful. That, sorrowful. We should be mourning. We should be repentant at that and turn from it. After everything that he's done for us, we should walk in obedience to that. Now, let me, let me say this. Repentance. How many of you use repentance outside of church? Like in a normal everyday conversation, how many of you talk about repentance? I, I bet very few of us, if any, right? So repentance is one of those words that we use in the context of the church, but we don't use it outside of the context of the church very often. And so I want to share a few thoughts with you very quickly what repentance is. And what it's not. Thankful for J.D. Greer. These points are his, not mine. So let me give him credit for that. All right. Here's, here's what it is and what it's not. Repentance is not feeling sorry for your sin. You, you ever seen that? Uh, somebody, they were convicted about their sin. They were broken over, over it. But just because they cried does not mean that they repented of it. There, there's an aspect that, that you could be sorrowful for your sin, but yet not repent of it. You remember the rich young ruler? He came to Jesus and he wanted to follow Jesus, but he went away sorrowful because he had many possessions. There is a sorrow that you can experience in your life that it does not lead to repentance. And so repentance is not just being sorry for your sin. Repentance is changing your mind about the lordship of Jesus. Because when you're living in sin, who's Lord of your life? You are. And so when, when you truly repent of something, you're saying, Jesus, I've done it my way long enough. 
now I want to do it your way and I want you to be Lord of my life. Third thing. This is a really good statement and I hope you catch it. Repentance is not an absence of sin, but it is an absence of defiance. That's good right there. It's not an absence of sin. Every single one of us will always struggle with sin. To the day we die, we've got a sin nature that we're constantly trying to put to death. And so repentance doesn't mean that you'll never sin again, but repentance is means that you're not defiant to Jesus anymore. You don't live in this attitude that says, I don't care what you say, Jesus. It's going to be my way. And so it's not an absence of sin, but it is an absence of the defiance of sin. This is a good statement, too. Repentance is not just about stopping your sin, but it's also about following Jesus. It's not just about stopping your sin, it's also about following Jesus. Because a lot of times, Somebody can stop living in sin, but that does not mean that they become a follower of Christ. There have been a, many a, a people who, who were doing things that broke the heart of God, but just because they stopped doing those things does not mean automatically mean that they started following Jesus. And so what repentance is, Mr. Gear, it's somebody who is living in one direction. They're doing something that breaks the heart of God. And so when they repent, they not only stop doing that, they turn from that sin and they walk in a different direction. And that direction should be that they're now following Jesus. Does that make sense? Does that make sense, Sam? It's, it's not just stopping your sin, it's also turning and following Jesus with your life. And here's what happens. When you truly, truly repent of your sin, when you understand just how much your sin has broken the heart of God and you repent of it, your repentance will come right before the greatest joy you've ever known in your life. Repentance always will precede joy. That's why we read about some of those great revivals. I mean, it's just an awesome worship experience that has broken out in the midst of that because people have gotten their heart right with Jesus and their repentance has led them to a joyful time of worship in Christ. Repentance will precede joy. Last thing and I'm done. In revival, there is a recommitment to the covenant that you have with Jesus. That's what all of chapter 9 is about. And they're remembering everything that God has done for them in the past. They start with Abraham. They move to their deliverance uh, from Egypt. It's interesting. Look at chapter 9, verse 16. In the midst of what God had done for them, their forefathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. Yet... The end of verse 17 says, But you are a God that is ready to forgive, that is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. And so there is a repentance that happens there, and the people once again begin to do what is right in the eyes of God. And, 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 and then you get to the time of Joshua, and, and they go into the inheritance of the promised land, and God drives out the people before them, and they inherit the land. You get to the end of chapter 9, verse 25, and the people are fat and happy. I mean, they're just really, really celebrating. But then it's almost like a cycle happens. You get to verse 26. They were disobedient, rebelled, and you cast, they cast your law behind your back, and they killed your prophets. Yet, God was gracious to them, and, and there was a restoration that happened, but it happens again. You get to verse 29, about halfway down verse 29. Yet, they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but they sinned against your rules. And then by the time you get to verse 32, now they're in the present tense. 
It's the situation that they find themselves in in Nehemiah's day. And they say, God, you're great, you're mighty, and you're the awesome God. And Lord, you keep covenant and steadfast love. Just out of curiosity, any of you ever felt like the Israelites? You go back through their history, man. There are days you're just pumped for Jesus. And then there are days that you stiffen up your neck and you're a hard hand. And it's this cycle. Some days I'm hot, man, the Lord's just moving. It happened in Jeremiah Lampier's life. A million people in, within 1857 to 1858, 1859. And how many of you would classify New York City as a godly place today? You just really wouldn't, would you? But there was a great revival there in the 18, late 1850s. It happens in our lives, too. I told our prayer team this morning, I don't oftentimes talk about people that are re- recommitting their lives to Jesus, but I really think there are people in this room today that your, your walk with Jesus has grown cold. That, you, that, that, that you're at a place in your life where the Scriptures really don't mean a whole lot to you. Your, your prayer life is almost non-existent. Uh, your, your concern for the people who know, know Christ is, is about over, and, and you're just kind of going through the motions in your walk with Christ. And, and I'm just being honest before God. What you need to do today, you know that you're a follower of Christ, but today you need to rededicate your life to Jesus Christ. Because you recognize that you're not where you need to be. And for revival to happen, there's got to be this great commitment to Him. And so these people, they recognize just how great God is. And when you get to the end of the chapter, um, uh, verse 38 they recognize who God is. And they say, because of all this, we make a firm covenant today in writing. You know, it's, only, it's only going to be about 450 years after Nehemiah writes this. That Jesus Christ is going to step out of heaven. He's going to lay aside some aspects of his Godhead. And he's going to step into human flesh. To be born of Mary and Joseph there in a in a manger. And Connor, he's going to live a perfect life. He's never going to mess up the first time. He's going to walk in obedience to what his father says his entire life. And 30 years old, 30 years old, he's going to be baptized by the Spirit. It's the inauguration of his ministry. And for three years, he's going to go about in all the towns and villages in the surrounding area preaching and teaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand imploring people to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's 33 years old. People are going to lie about some of his teachings and he's going to be arrested. He's going to be falsely accused. There's going to be people who are put in place to falsely accuse him and lie at his mock trial. And Joshua, they're going to spit in his face. They're going to take their hands and they're going to hit him and beat him. He's going to be scourged. With a cat of nine tails, it's going to be the worst beating that any of you can ever imagine in your life. They're going to twist a, a crown of thorns with thorns literally that, that long. And, and they're going to make a mockery of a crown and put that on his head. And then they're going to stretch his arms out. After he's been beaten and he's been bloodied and he's been mocked and he's been ridiculed, he's going to, they're, they're going to stretch his arms out. After he's taken up his cross and, and gone up the hill, they're going to stretch his arms out and drive nails in his hands and in his feet, 
And then in the most inhumane and cruel way possible, they're going to lift him up and crucify him. And he did every single bit of that for people like you and me. He did that to take our place. He did that to take the punishment of our sin. When those nails went through his hands, he was taking the punishment that you and I deserve. And when we, by faith, accept this gracious gift, we enter into a covenant with Him. That's what Jeremiah 31 talks about. There is a new covenant there because of Christ. And this is the good part. His sacrifice goes in our place. But Miss Ruby, He just didn't die for us. He lived for us. Remember I said He lived perfectly? He never sinned, not even once. And so he takes all of our bad stuff. He he takes the penalty for our sin. But at the same time, he gives us his righteousness. The good life that he lived, it becomes credited to our account. And so he lived for us and he died for us. And he creates this new covenant by grace through faith in his sacrifice. So therefore, what Romans 12 would say, man... We should be a living sacrifice. Our lives should be lived as a living sacrifice as an act of worship to Him. And for some of you, you've gotten away from everything that He's done for you. And your, your life is just kind of flatlined spiritually. And today the Spirit of God is saying, man, come back. Get back to this place where you're hot after me. Get back to this place where you're really deeply motivated. You're committed, you're surrendered to live faithfully for me. Would you pray with me? Lord, today, I don't think there's a single thing that that I've said, Lord, that can motivate somebody to follow you. Not in my own power. Lord, if you see fit, Lord, would your spirit take my feeble efforts? And Lord, would you take your word, put it deeply into the hearts of your people, to the minds of your people? Lord, would you start a fire within this congregation that can't be contained by these walls? Lord, start a fire that can't be controlled. Lord, prone to wander. Lord, I feel. Prone to leave you, the God we love. Lord, in these next few moments, Lord, would you take our hearts. Take and seal them. Seal them, seal them full. Father, you receive honor, you receive glory during this time of invitation. In Jesus' name I pray. Would you stand with us and sing. The Spirit of God's leading you, and the Spirit is just working on your heart. And you feel led today that you need to rededicate your life to Christ when you step out from where you are.
come and let us know that so we can be praying for you. Maybe you're here this morning you've never trusted in Jesus. As we simply talked about revival, you recognize that if you died today, you'd spend eternity separated from Christ. And if that's you, you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. The greatest decision you'll ever make is to come and surrender your life to Jesus. And so however the Spirit of God is leading you, you respond to Jesus.
face them all and stand.